Let us open the precious Word of God to the sixth chapter of Romans, where we'll take up again in our verse-by-verse exposition of this epistle of our beloved brother Paul by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Thank you, Lord, for Romans chapter 6. Let me read to you the first five verses. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection." Amen and Amen. Romans, the epistle, can first be divided between a more doctrinal section being the first 11 chapters and a more practical section of miscellaneous and sundry duties in chapters 12 through 16. But there is a yet a better division, and we have just passed over that division, the first of its sort in Romans. The first five chapters lay out to us the condemnation of all men and salvation by the interposition of the Lord Jesus Christ as our second Adam. And that is in the first five chapters. The next section would be chapters 6 through 8, in which we are exhorted to living worthy of that salvation that was obtained for us by Jesus Christ. Chapters 9 through 11 deal with some distinctions between Israel and the Gentiles and God's respective dealings with both classes of men. And then we have 12 and 16, the chapters that give us our sundry duties. And so here at this first verse of chapter 6, we start a new section of Romans. We have had condemnation and salvation explained to us in no uncertain terms in the first five chapters. And now in the next three chapters, we will be exhorted to living unto that Lord Jesus Christ who saved us. That we should no longer be the servants of sin, but that we should walk after the Spirit, not after the flesh. And though there is a warfare going on within us because of the body of sin that is yet with us, as seven will describe, Jesus Christ has freed us from any legal or eternal consequences And we should be living unto Him with all our hearts and minds. But here we are at chapter 6. In chapter 6, we can split it in half. And we can see that in verses 1 through 13, there is an appeal based on our death in Christ that we ought to be dead to sin. And based on our resurrection in Christ, 
we ought to be walking in a new life. Jesus died and was buried, and He rose again to sit at God's right hand and to live unto God with an eternal life. We have died with Christ and been buried with Him, and we should rise to walk in a new life. Verses 14 through 23 will describe it as having been bond slaves or servants of sin. Now we are to be bond slaves or servants of righteousness and to live holy lives unto God. And so in the sixth chapter, we can split it between 13 and 14 if we just want to make one division there in the chapter. Romans chapter 6 is very practical. It is about, are we, it is about continuing to live in sin. And it says that very plainly in the first verse. Shall we continue in sin? I want to introduce you to the chapter, and that's what I'm doing right now. And so in the first verse, it tells us, shall we continue in sin? No! Though God has provided so abundantly by His grace through Jesus Christ in chapters 1 through 5, that does not encourage us nor give us leave to live any way we choose. The opposite is true. Based on that sacrifice paid for us and based on the example of Jesus Christ, we ought to live unto righteousness. But it's a very practical chapter. In the third verse, it's going to say, Know ye not. These are things that we know. These are not things that God knows and that He's doing. These are things that we are supposed to know. And as a consequence of knowing certain things about our religion, it should affect how we live. Verses 4 through 6, that we should have new lives and no longer serve sin. Verse 9 says, knowing again. Because these are things that we're supposed to know, basics of Christianity, that we should know as believers. I think the 11th verse is a very crucial one in the sense that it gives us of how the Apostle is reasoning here. He says in the 11th verse, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. The message of Romans 6 is that we are supposed to think in a certain way for our practical lives that are left in this world until the Lord comes for us. He has left the doctrine of representation and imputation in Romans 5. He has left justification by faith in the case of Abraham in chapter 4. He has left free justification through Jesus Christ in chapter 3. He's left the condemnation of the Jewish legalists in chapter 2. He's left our condemnation in chapter 1. Those are God's dealings toward us as condemned sinners. Chapter 6 is that we are to be reckoning or learning to think in a particular way so that we will live based on that new mindset which is based on the principles and basics of Christianity. And I haven't said that word yet that starts with B because Paul doesn't say it initially. He just says, Know ye not... In this sixth chapter, that so many of us, as we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we're baptized into his death. Verse two, he says, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? It is an understanding of what Jesus has done for us that should result in us living a certain way. That's what Romans six is all about. Seven is going to tell us about the great conflict we have and how that conflict relates to the law of God. 
chapter 8 is going to exhort us again and lay out God's promises to encourage us in our obedient walk before Him. But this chapter is one of practicality. It is thinking the way that a Christian should think and living accordingly. One of the greatest ordinances of the gospel of Jesus Christ is raised in this chapter. This is a chapter that Baptists appreciate. This is one of the places in the scriptures where we take a few of its verses that are dealing with the ordinance of baptism, couple these verses with other verses in the New Testament, and establish Bible baptism. The baptism that we believe in this church. And though we do not have the word Baptist formally in our name, we are Baptists by conviction, not merely by tradition. We don't want to be Baptists just because we go to a church that has the word Baptist formally in its name. We want to be Baptists by conviction that it's what the Bible teaches. And we are Baptists. And we are not ashamed of being Baptists. And we love the fact that we're Baptists. And we're Baptists like John was a Baptist. And we're Baptists like Jesus was a Baptist. And we're Baptists like Mary was a Baptist. And we're Baptists like Paul was a Baptist. Because they were all baptized the way that Baptists baptize. And our Lord Jesus Christ was baptized by the Baptist. Now, though this is somewhat out of order, and I have a difficult time today trying to follow any order, because while I want to glory in the true doctrine of baptism, I want more than that to convict you, are you living up to your baptism? I'll tell you something about the God of heaven that we're dealing with. We learned last Lord's Day that we are to pass the time of our sojourning here in fear. You ought to go, and I hope to take you there before the day's over, to Isaiah 1 and Isaiah 66 and Malachi 1 and Hebrews 10 and point out to you that when you take His ordinances and you don't live up to them, He despises what you're doing. And He will come with fury upon His own people. We have all been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. We have been baptized in a symbolic figure, a picture of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord. Now, if we don't live a life dead to sin and alive to God, we are disgracing that ordinance. And he is offended and highly offended that we were ever baptized if we're not going to live up to it. Because in baptism, we declared to witnesses, we declared to witnesses in heaven and witnesses on earth that we were going to live a new life. That we were burying our old man to rise to walk in a resurrected life. And he takes that very seriously. And it's a stench in his nostrils if we don't live up to it. That is what we want to consider. We want to understand the verses. We want to know the doctrine of baptism. But most of all, we want to be convicted to live a life dead to sin and alive to God. Because that's what baptism declared we should be doing. We use the King James Bible. Some would say that because of political pressure 
from King James that our translators compromised the word, the Greek word baptizo, which is how we get the word baptism, and left it in the King James Bible instead of putting immersion or dipping out of fear. Wrong. Our translators were not afraid, nor were they dishonest. Every honest man knows that the Greek word baptizo and the English word baptism means to be immersed, submerged, or dipped. You say, I've met Presbyterians that deny that. Of course. What do you think they're going to do? They've got Rome's sacrament in their church. They have to deny it. You say, well, haven't there been thousands of books written on both sides of that argument about the meaning of the word baptizo? You are right. What a waste of time. Why don't we go to the authority on the Greek language? To whom should we go? Americans that went to seminary at Bob Jones University? Should we go to Germans? Should we go to the Roman Catholic Church that is known as the Latin Church because they only understand one language? Latin. There is another church that we can go to that knows the Greek language. What church would it be? The Greek Orthodox Church. The Greek Catholics. Now, Greeks should understand Greek. So far, we're not dealing too deeply, are we? Baptizo is a Greek word, and they accuse our King James translators of being afraid of the king and the Church of England and just leaving that transliterated word baptism in the Bible when they could have put dip, submerge, or immerse and make it easier for us. I'm glad they did it just the way they did it. Amen. The Greek Catholics, what do they believe about the mode of baptism? They're as foolish as the Roman Catholics when it comes to the subject of baptism. They baptize babies. But how do Greek Catholics or the Greek Orthodox Church baptize babies? What do they understand about their Greek word baptizo? And this is all I'm going to say about this ridiculous word from a relatively dead language. They dip, submerge, and immerse their babies three times in the name of the Father, and then again in the name of the Son, and then again in the name of the Holy Spirit, to commemorate two things. To commemorate the triune God in whose name they're being baptized, and to commemorate the three days and three nights Jesus was in the ground. Now that's thorough dipping when you do it three times. That's thorough immersing. They understand the word baptizo, and as far as playing around with a dead language, we'll just leave that argument for the scholars who want to waste time and who want to cloud the minds of God's saints. Because all you have to do is read from Matthew to Revelation, and you know exactly how baptism is to occur, and you know exactly to whom it is to be performed. It is done by immersion down in under and buried and planted in the water, and it is done only to those that are believers and committed to following the Lord Jesus Christ. 
because it is the answer of a good conscience toward God. Now, you once gave an answer of a good conscience toward God, and I hope that you were qualified well enough that when you gave the answer of a good conscience toward God, you truly had a good conscience. Because we are to live in the light of that conscience declaration about Jesus Christ. We are thankful to be Baptists, and we are not ashamed of being Baptists. We live in a city with over 400 Baptist churches. We don't have the word Baptist formally in our name because we can't find such a church in the New Testament. We just want to be known by our geographical location as the churches of the New Testament were known. But they were all Baptist churches because they all baptized the way the Baptists baptized. And we're Baptists the same way, by practice, by conviction, not by some formal name that the SBC, Southern Baptist Convention, or any other man-made organization is forced upon us. We don't want to revel in a name, nor take confidence in a name. We want to take confidence and revel in the truth of God's Word, and that we are committed to it, and that we have walked in His truth. Amen. Romans chapter 6. Please follow me along as we try to do three things. And let me state them again. Learn the passage... Understand the doctrine of baptism, but most of all, be convicted, are we living worthy of it? Because in that ordinance, we took the name of our God and the name of our Savior, and we showed a picture of death to sin and life to God. And we better be living that. That's what we want from these verses. That's what Paul intended by these verses. He begins, as is common with him, with a question. It's an interactive way of teaching. It's an excellent way of teaching. Ask a question that could very well be arising in people's minds and then answer it. Head them off before they even can ask the question at the end of the chapter. Just go ahead and get it over with. It's a wonderful way of teaching and here it is for us. What shall we say then? After we have heard all that is in Romans 1 through 5, what shall we say then? If you read Romans 1 through 5 and you study it the way we have in 57 sermons, the conclusion we come to, especially as we tie things up at the end of chapter 5, is that God has sovereignly saved us by His free grace that is in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's by the obedience of one that we're going to make it to heaven. Verse 19 tells us, Of chapter 5, for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. And that brought to a close the doctrine of imputation and representation. Jesus Christ obeyed on our behalf. And as sovereignly as Adam made us sinners, by the choice of God for him to be our representative, so Jesus Christ's obedience made us righteous. By God's choice for him to be our representative. Then you read in the next two verses, Moreover, the law entered. Well, way after Moses, way after Adam, there was Moses, and Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the law of God. So the law entered. Why did it enter? That the offense might abound. It didn't enter to save anyone. It entered to condemn everyone, especially the Jews. 
Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. The offense of sin. It might be shown to be in all of us. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. And there you end chapter 5. If we have been saved by the obedience of Jesus Christ, if the law was given to magnify our sinfulness, but in the light of that abounding sinfulness, grace has much more abounded, and we've been saved to eternal life through Jesus Christ, what shall we say then? What response do we have to the doctrine of Romans 1 through 5? And I love the question. And we should be asking ourselves the question. What shall we say then? How does the truth affect you? Right. What are you doing because of Romans 1 through 5? What have we done with the knowledge of universal condemnation and special justification for the elect of God? What effect does it have on us? What are you considering at this very moment in regard to the truth of Romans 1 through 5? Shall we joy in the knowledge of Romans 1 through 5 without the virtue that should be associated with Romans 1 through 5? Do you know who that is like? That is like the Jews. In Romans 2.17, Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God. Are we resting in the gospel and making our boast of God without the holiness that should be flowing from that gospel? The apostle would tell those Jews, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You rest in the law. You make your boast of God, but you live a life violating the law. Who cares that you wear it? Who cares that you kiss it? Who cares that you memorize it if you don't obey it? Who cares if we understand the truth of Romans 1 through 5, but we don't live a life changed from the condemned way of life of Romans 1 and in light of the salvation Jesus has earned for us and won for us in chapter 5? Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Brethren, the truth of the gospel should change our lives. We want to know these verses and what Paul intended by them to his Roman audience and to us. We want to understand baptism, and we are Baptists, but we want to live in light of our baptisms. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look at verse 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us. Was there any love in Romans chapter 5? But God commendeth His love toward us. Amen. I noticed in the recent program that was made up of our thanksgivings that at least a couple of you used Romans 5.8 for what, as what you are thankful for. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The love of Christ 
constraineth us. It presses us and directs us and pushes us in a certain direction. The love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge, and this is very logical thinking, that if one died for all, if one had to die as a substitute for all the others, then we're all dead. We had the sentence of death upon all of us. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Does that make sense? If we had the sentence of death upon us and God out of love sent his son to die in our place, then the life that we have because of the death of that son should cause us not to live for ourselves, but to live for him who gave us that life by the death of his son. That should be the most logical consequence of hearing about the love of God. What shall we say then? Is how Romans 6 begins. What do you say? What are you thinking right now? Are you making light of the love of God and the sending of His Son? It is Matthew 22, 5 that told us last Lord's Day they made light of it. And one went to his farm and another to his merchandise. What are you thinking about? What shall we say then? Is the question. The Apostle asks us. We should say with the Apostle in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, and you have heard this one before, we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. We are bound to give thanks. Here in 2 Corinthians 5, we're bound to live for Christ. 2 Thessalonians 2, we're bound to thank God always for having saved us. And may God save us from making light of it. Do you know how we make light of it? We care about the things of this life. You don't have to say that you hate Jesus Christ to be a hater of His gospel. All you have to do is care more about the things of this life. Go to your merchandise. Go to your farm. Go to your goofy little business. And make light of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Back to Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? After all the wonderful salvation that's been described for us in the first five chapters, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? Shall we continue in sin? We were sinners. Jesus has obeyed. It's all based on Jesus' obedience that we're made righteous. The law was given to show how bad we are, but there was plenty more grace than how bad we are. Shall we continue in sin? God's grace should change our lives. The Christian religion is one of mental toughness that I taught you last Sunday. We had that interruption in our study of Romans for a purpose. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's works, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Shall we continue in sin? There are legalists like the Jews that Paul had to fight. They take their confidence in the ritual of Christianity. 
They take their confidence in the ritual of the Jews' religion under Moses. It's called ritualism. It's called legalism. It's called formalism. Well, as long as we go to church and get ourselves inside that beautiful place, and as long as we drop a little bit of money in, and as long as we go through the motions, then that is Christianity. And we can go ahead and live any way we wish. There's a whole category of churches in that camp. As long as we've gone through the ritualistic motions of our religion, then it doesn't matter how we live. Then there's another camp. And these are fatalists. These take put so much emphasis on Romans chapter 5 that it doesn't matter how we live. We're saved anyway. And unless God changes me, I'm not going to change. And we end up being practical fatalists. God saved us. Aren't we all happy? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The apostle would condemn any that think that we can go ahead and live any way we wish. And that the apostle's doctrine could be reduced to let us do evil, that good may come. The apostle already said in Romans chapter 3 and verse 8 that anyone that takes his gospel and reduces it to that false statement, let us do evil that good may come, their damnation is just. They are justly damned by a holy God forever taking the true doctrine of grace and constructing it and, and perverting it and corrupting it in such a way that it would teach we can live any way we wish. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Since there's so much grace that overwhelms our sins, and since it's the obedience of Jesus that makes us righteous, does it matter how we live? Oh, it matters. And brethren, we need to be asking ourselves this question. Do we let our knowledge of the grace of God blind us so that we live an unrighteous life? that we don't live a dedicated life that is conformed to God's Word? Do we let the preaching and our knowledge of predestination and election and the representation of Jesus Christ dull us down to where we don't care as much as we should about laboring diligently to be accepted in His sight? Remember the Apostle? In that 2 Corinthians chapter 5, not only did he say that the love of Christ constrained him, that he ought to live his life in repayment to the Lord for having saved him from death. But he said, whether present or absent, whether here on earth or in heaven, he labors to be accepted of him. And that is what should be driving us. Are we at all guilty of this heresy of continuing in sin that grace may abound? We don't say it audibly. We wouldn't say to each other, I'm going to go ahead and continue in sin so that grace might abound. We wouldn't put it in those words. But in effect, we're declaring that if we live carelessly. The Christian religion is not one of relaxation, though it is called rest. Do you know what Jesus said to find rest for your soul? Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. There's some work involved. But it's pleasant work. It's work in the paths that Jesus Christ has outlined for us. That's where we find our rest. But we can't relax. We've got to gird up the loins of our mind. Because our mind just wants to run. And the world wants to fill it through your eyes and your ears. But we've got to gird up the loins of our mind and be committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the love that God showed us in Him and to Jesus Christ dying for us. Shall we continue in sin 
that grace may abound. Is there pride? Do we have pride that we understand the truth of God's sovereign grace? That pride is a stench in his nostrils. And there's no salvation in knowing the truth. I get so sick of hearing people say, well, he knows the truth. I'm so thankful that we know the truth. Knowing the truth will not save you and doesn't add to your salvation. The devils know the truth. They tremble about the truth. They know the truth better than you know the truth. Knowing the truth is not our salvation. It's living the truth. Living a changed life. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he knows the truth. No, it doesn't say that. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Holiness is the evidence of eternal life. Not knowing the truth. Many are called. That means they knew the truth. Few are chosen. That means they lived the truth. Because they showed by a holy life that they had Christ's righteousness upon them. Do we take false comfort in God's grace that we can sin presumptuously and be forgiven? That's false comfort. Do you presume your soul is safe in the great day of judgment? Because you hear grace taught in this church? Do you presume that your soul is safe? Because you believe that grace. Do I presume my soul is safe because I preach that grace? Shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? Well, we have a good answer in the second verse. God forbid. God forbid. No way in the name of God should we ever consider Such a ridiculous consequence to the glorious doctrine contained in chapters 1 through 5. No way, God forbid, the truth of Paul's gospel of sovereign grace does not allow us to continue in sin. God forbid, true theology rightly understood and rightly applied never leads to licentiousness, never leads to lasciviousness, never leads to a sinful or wicked course of life. That is the enemies of the gospel that accuse us of that. And let's never give them ground to accuse us of that by living in such a way. Let's prove our doctrine by our lives. Let's glorify our doctrine. Let's adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ by our lives. Let's shut the mouths of gainsayers. Can't you hear the apostle by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit begging for the living testimony and the living epistles outside these doors that will declare the doctrine we have is true By the honesty and integrity and righteousness and holiness and purity of your life. Can you hear him begging? Can you hear him exhorting? Can you hear him pressing? That we can shut the mouths, defend the gospel, and adorn it, and beautify it, and live in a way that is becoming to the gospel of Christ. God forbid the true gospel of Christ results in a changed life. Look at Titus chapter 2 with me. Titus chapter 2. Oh, brethren, we want the crown of the road. We don't want a ditch of literalism. I mean, we don't want a ditch of legalism and ritualism and formalism. We don't want a ditch of fatalism. We want to be in the crown of the road. And the Bible gives us direction. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? It appears from Romans 5... That if we casually read it, we could be antinomians, meaning 
those that live without law. That is the formal theological term used to criticize our ancestors in the faith. That because we placed so much emphasis on election and predestination that we didn't care how a person lived. That was wrong. Our ancestors cared very much all the way back to the Apostle Paul who asked, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And his answer was, God forbid. So your accusation of us being antinomians is false. You're the antinomians because you put the emphasis of salvation on your ritualism instead of a changed life. You describe a person as a child of God because they had a little bit of salt stuffed in their mouth by a foolish witchcraft doctor named a priest and had water sprinkled in his forehead. You call that salvation? You want to call us antinomians? You put the emphasis on the sacraments of your church rather than a changed life. Right. And the modern Arminian is a sacramentalist and the invitation is his sacrament. And if you'll respond to the invitation, it doesn't matter how you live. Look at what the Bible says about the grace of God. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. This is the gospel of the grace of God that had been preached in all the world that Paul spoke of in other places. That gospel teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people, Zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. That is what the grace of God teaches. If you understand the grace of God that is contained in Romans 1 through 5, then the effect that it will have upon you, learning about the love of God being extended to you while you were yet a sinner, without strength and ungodly and condemned along with the rest of our race, you're going to want to live for Him a godly life. You're going to be looking for the blessed hope of the coming of Jesus Christ. You're going to understand He's chosen you to be His peculiar people, zealous of good works. He sent Jesus Christ to die to redeem you from all sin, not so that you can live in all your sins. This is what grace teaches. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. That is not our doctrine. You bet we exalt predestination and election right where it should be. It is in the eternal phase of God's plan of salvation for us. He planned it before the world began and He chose us by name and put us in the book of life and assigned the Lord Jesus Christ by covenant to come for us. Who at that time was the Word of God in case you're confused. This is what we believe about the grace of God. If you'll turn over just a few pages to the book of Jude, which it wasn't too many months ago that I preached this epistle to you as well. The epistle of Jude. Just before the book of Revelation, we have... A statement here about false teachers. Jude 1, verse 4. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. They may not have denied Him verbally, but they denied Him by their works. 
which is what Titus chapter 1, verse 15, says about false teachers. Notice, they turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. Lasciviousness is unbridled lust. It's unrestrained living for yourself, living for your feelings, living for your appetites. And they turn the grace of God into it. Sinner, you can know today, because you've invited Jesus into your heart, that you are going to go to heaven when you die. Don't let anyone tell you about commandments that you need to keep because that's legalism. You've invited Jesus into your heart. You can know that you're going to go to heaven when you die. That is turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. The Apostle Peter would say the only way that you can know you're going to heaven when you die is when you add to your faith virtue and then six other things. And if you do these things, you shall never fall. Second Peter's version of Jude in Peter's description of these false teachers puts it this way he says they promise them liberty who themselves are the servants of corruption they promise them liberty there is liberty in the gospel and that liberty means to them lasciviousness you can live any way you want because now you're saved either you've taken the sacraments or you've invited Jesus into your heart but we know no such gospel Our gospel is found in Romans chapter 6, and it says, God forbid. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we? How shall we, you Roman believers, and me, Paul, how shall we, that are dead to sin, live any longer therein? How in the world... There is a restraint put upon us in this passage that he will then explain what that restraint is. There are restraining factors that cannot and do not allow a Christian to live any way they want. There's a restraint. These saints to whom Paul wrote the epistle of Romans are the elect of God. They're described that way in Romans chapter 1. They were full of faith. Their faith was known throughout the whole world. Paul described them as having the mutual faith that he had, and he couldn't wait to get to Rome to preach the gospel to them. Believers with mutual faith in God have a restraint upon their lives. The Lord sovereignly knows His elect. 2 Timothy 2.19 declares, The foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are His. But that's not all that verse. The foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are His. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That's the whole verse. Ah, we don't want to emphasize God's knowledge of us in the first half without living out the second half of that verse. And have we named the name of Christ? We have named the name of Christ in the ordinance of baptism. And when we name the name of Christ in the ordinance of baptism, it put a constraint upon us as to what effect the gospel of the grace of God would have in us. God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? There is a constraint upon us. We have done something that burdens us with living a completely different life. And that thing we have done that puts that constraint upon us 
in this figurative section of a practical chapter is baptism. That's why the third verse starts out with the words, Know ye not? Don't you already know this? Aren't you already established in this? So that there is an obvious answer to the question, what shall we then say to these things? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Well, Paul, in what way do you mean that we're dead to sin? Paul, do you mean that we're dead to sin in God's eternal plan of redemption? Oh, we're dead to sin from there. But that doesn't change our lives of how we live. And that's not the context. The context tells us, so without reading verses 3 through 5, trying to answer verse 2 can seem to be difficult. But this is not about the eternal phase of salvation, of God's choice of us in Christ to be holy and without blame. This is not the legal phase of salvation of Jesus dying on the cross and paying all our sins. This is talking about us making a choice of how we are going to live. It's not the vital phase where the Holy Spirit puts a new nature in us. It's not the final phase where we're glorified in heaven without sin. This is the practical phase, and it's a very small part of the practical phase, in that it is referring to baptism being the figurative picture of us dying and being buried to a sinful lifestyle and then being resurrected to a new, different life unto God and holiness. That is the lesson of the first half of Romans chapter 6, introduced by Paul with questions because of the power and glory of our salvation, our eternal, legal, vital, and final salvation that was described in Romans 1 through 5. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not? Don't you already know this? That so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into His death. Therefore, we are buried with Him in, by baptism, into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. In those three verses, the answer is given to the question, and and the explanation is given to the question in verse 2. The question in verse 2 is, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And Paul's appeal is not the eternal, legal, vital, or final phase of salvation. It's your baptism. Don't you know what you said by your baptism? Don't you know that when you gave the answer of a good conscience toward God for His grace toward you, that you said you were dying with Christ, that you were crucifying your old man with Christ, that you were burying your old man with Christ to rise to live a resurrected life with Christ toward God in holiness. That is the doctrine of Romans chapter 6. And so for the next number of verses, Paul is going to repeat and repeat 
that we are dead in Christ. We are dead with Christ. We are buried with Christ and all of it around the wonderful ordinance of baptism, which has that glorious picture for Baptists of death, burial, and resurrection. Can you imagine being a Presbyterian and trying to explain Romans chapter 6? You can read them in your online Bible DVD. They will admit that the Apostle Paul, and I quote in general, they will admit that the Apostle Paul is obviously referring to the ancient and original and apostolic mode of baptism. Then they will spend the rest of their commentary trying to undo what they just had to say. But because it was the apostolic way, doesn't mean it's the only way. I, I had to, you have to read that kind of stuff to believe it. That it really isn't the mode, it's the nature of baptism. Well, I want to tell you something as a Baptist pastor, you can't separate the nature of baptism from its mode because its mode is its nature. It is a practical ordinance without any saving grace. It is a figurative picture of what we believe Jesus did for us and what we're going to do for Him. There isn't any actual grace communicated in the waters of baptism. It is a public, symbolic, figurative picture of what Christ did for us and what we are going to do for Him. The nature and the mode are inseparable. And so He would appeal to it. Do you see the words like and likeness in these verses? See, there's not a reality. There is a figure. We're doing something like what Christ did. We're being buried underwater. He was buried under the ground. He rose from out of the ground. We rise up out of the water. It's called a burial. Do we bury when we baptize? Oh, indeed we do. Do we resurrect when we baptize? Indeed we do. Or we would have drowned professors. We do raise them up. Do we have a planting in our burials? In our baptisms, excuse me. Do we have a planting? Planting is to put a seed under the ground. We plant in baptism because we put under the water. Do you have the Apostle's argument? The Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, will argue from the most powerful points he can. He took those poor Jews to their own law and proved them condemned by their own scriptures in chapter 3. He then took them to their father Abraham and showed them that Abraham was declared righteous by God before the law ever came. He then took those poor Jews to Adam in Romans chapter 5 and declared them sinners and that even babies were dying before Moses because of Adam's transgression. Now what's he doing? He is taking these believers in Rome and he's taking us in Greenville. And he's saying, after you've heard the grace of God, what is the response you have? What are you thinking? Should you just go ahead and continue living any old way? Because after all, God has sovereignly saved you by grace through Jesus Christ? God forbid. No way is that the conclusion that you ought to be drawing. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ were buried by baptism in a picture of His death? And we rose up out of that water in a picture of His resurrection. He died to sin once, and now He lives to God. We died to sin once, and now we should be living to God. That's the lesson. 
That's the doctrine. The important part is, are we convicted to live up worthy of our baptisms? I have said sometimes, and I hope you understand how I say it, and I hope that the Lord understands how I mean it from my heart. I wish we could be baptized every Sunday. But he told us, for as oft as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show my death till I come. We were baptized once, but the apostle appeals to it here for how we should live. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 29, in the middle of his heavy argumentation to defend the resurrection of the body, he appealed to Baptist baptism as the evidence that those people in Corinth had already declared that they believed in a future resurrection because of the way they were baptized. We are buried and we are raised up out of water for three pictures. What Jesus did for us, what we're going to do for him on an ongoing basis, and what he's going to do for us in the great day of the resurrection. All of that is only in Baptist baptism. There is no picture or symbology of a New Testament doctrine in any other baptism. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word and convict us to live worthy of taking the name of our Father upon us and taking the name of Jesus Christ and showing a picture of death, burial, and resurrection. If we have not killed and mortified our flesh and made every effort to live a life dead to sin and alive to God, we are not living worthy of our baptisms. And we have taken the holy ordinance of God and we have perverted it and we have profaned it. God have mercy on us. And he is this day teaching us, all of us who have been baptized, as Paul said, know ye not that as so many of us as were baptized should be living a certain way, not in sin, not continuing in our former course of life, but with a changed life. May God bless the preaching of his word. Amen.